0: Evening, Devin and Craig Hayes. They are both longtime Dharma practitioners, longtime teachers, and also authors of a new book called How Not to Be a Hot Mess A Survival Guide for Modern Life, which sounds like a fantastic book. So, welcome, Devin and Craig, and um, we're, we're so happy to have you here with us, and thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Trip. Um, it's really warming my heart to be here with you, Trip. Trip and I did CDL four together, and to see Nina here also part of CDL six, um, and I see other friends, Allison, welcome, and Lana. Yeah, familiar faces. I've had some really wonderful visits. Paul, hello. So good to see you. Um, I've had really wonderful visits to your sangha on Sunday nights when we're in town in San Francisco coming to sit with Eugene and friends. Um, so this feels poignant to be back with you and in these very different circumstances. We had expected to be there in person and things change. We had planned this whole big book tour for the summer, but. We'll tell you more about that in a bit. So um, first, I think we just wanna sort of start by uh, welcoming, maybe just welcoming ourselves first into your Sangha, because I know that you are an ongoing community and um, sen- I sense that, you know, this sense of togetherness and practicing together um, during this time. And so sort of deep bows, humbly joining you for this evening. And uh, just framing also that for me, uh, mindfulness in general feels like a a welcoming act, that we're welcoming all the parts of ourselves that might not always feel welcome. You know, this beautiful uh, poem by the uh, Japanese nun, um, Izumi, I think is her name. Um, She says, gazing at the full moon at night, I knew myself completely no part left out and really just that sense of gathering of inviting of welcoming Uh, so internally welcoming all those parts of ourselves those identities that might not always feel welcome and then also naming in the community you know there's very many identities in this community and uh, my aspiration is to speak from a place of welcoming and friendliness and acknowledging and seeing all the very many different views and, and folks who are here joining us. So, um, yeah, might not always do it perfectly, but just wanting to, to say that to aspire to a deep inclusion in our sanghas. I think also it feels appropriate before we start our practice to acknowledge the land that we're on. Uh, Craig and I live in Southern Oregon in a town called Ashland, which many of you might know. And uh, I was born here in this town, and I haven't lived here for 12 years or more. But just coming home to live, potentially for the long term now, um, I noticed how my body feels different in my hometown where I was born. And so there's a sense of rootedness you know, having lived all over the place, in D.C. and Madison and Hawaii and Colorado, um, there's a kind of rootedness that's here. And also knowing those roots don't go very deep, actually, because my parents moved here from California and Washington and New York City. And their parents before them moved to the U.S. from Europe. And so this sense of I'm a white person being part of this settler race, that came to this land and, and basically stole it. So wanting to name that for so many generations before white people came here, this was the territory of the Lotgawa people. Uh, they are known as the people of the uplands. And this particular territory in Southern Oregon was a very migratory route. There's a lot of trades going on between Northern California and then Central and Northern Oregon. So wanting to just name um, and, and pay homage to and honor the folks who came before. And also wanting to name the land that you are on if you're in California in the Bay Area. Um, I know it's Ohlone land perhaps and other tribes that I don't know. Um, and if you're in other spots, I know Lana is maybe in the Midwest. Um, just really bowing to the ancestors and those who came before us, stewards of the land and stewards of the lineage also. Um, we are here in debt to the many teachers who have passed on so generously this practice to us, um, from warm hand to warm hand. So wanting to name for me that Joseph Goldstein and Eugene and Pam and Jack and all of our many Western Dharma teachers have been, um, my benefactors and before them, um, uh, Anagarika Munindraji, and Deepama and Mahasi Sayada, and so many others. Ajanta Chah, uh, just passing this lineage on from Asia to here. So our early Buddhist roots we have, and also Craig and I, we practice in the Vajrayana tradition of Kagyu Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. So our main Kagyu teacher is Mingyur Rinpoche, uh, you might have heard of him. There's a lot of sort of cross-pollination and interweave between his Sangha, which is called Tergar, and um, and the Spirit Rock community and the IMS community. So um, just really deep bows and paying homage to those who have so generously bequeathed this practice to us. So um, I'll just say one more thing before we dive into the meditation. Craig is going to, to lead us in this body-centered meditation, but I wanted to tell you that we hope to share with you this evening our thoughts on sex and sexuality and the dharma. So this is a chapter in our book. It's one, it was one of the hardest chapters to write, but it's also, I think, one of my favorites. And we'll say lots more about it. This is a conversation we don't normally have, I think, in our, um, in our dharma communities. But in some ways, this is a bow to Eugene, because I know that sexuality is a huge part of his dharma practice, his dharma, and uh, he's actually really encouraged me to explore this topic quite a lot in teaching. So um, yeah, so that's where we're going this evening, and uh, without further ado, i pass it on to, to Craig, and thank you for
2: being here. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you, Devin, for that introduction, helping us all settle in here together as a community. Can everybody hear me okay? Sound okay? Yeah, and thank you for all, thank you to all of you for just allowing us to join you. I know that you're all, most of you are committed practitioners of this San Francisco Insight Sangha and It's an honor. Both of us, Devin and I, have come to sit with you a number of times. And so it's just an honor to be able to join you tonight and be together. And in the book, this is the book, by the way, How Not to Be a Hot Mess, A Survival Guide for Modern Life. And in the book, we'll talk a little bit about this chapter that we wrote about sex and A lot of it's about the body though. What takes us away from my body, your body, and then how do we re-inhabit the body? Come back to the body, this living body. So I thought maybe we'd just start with a body-based meditation. So you can find yourself a comfortable position. Some of us, it's nice to sit upright. If you're one of these who likes a nice upright uh, meditation posture, that can be very helpful. It brings a kind of alignment and alertness to the spine. But if you'd rather, you could lie down. You know That's okay too. You could stand if you want. You could even do a slow walking meditation for this guided period. Just maybe turn your video off if you're walking. The Buddha talked about four noble postures or what I think of four embodied postures. And any one of those postures would be an invitation for this practice. And as you find yourself here, you might close your eyes. and drop a warm awareness into your living body. This body is alive. This body is sensing, feeling, touching. And there's wisdom in your body. And so the first step might be just to drop in here, just with a relaxed, friendly awareness, just into this, into your living body. Well, maybe you could take a few nice deep breaths. Breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth. Feeling as the air fills your lungs and feeling that sense of release as you breathe the air out. really letting go of any tension that wants to release, not forcing anything, not making anything happen, but just (sighs) releasing anything you're holding that wants to let go. And then once you've taken those few deeper breaths, allow your breath to find a natural rhythm. Just a rhythm that feels comfortable for you. Let the breath settle into a natural pace, this breathing body. And in particular, you might bring a warm awareness to the crown of your head. Feeling your scalp, feeling maybe even your hair. Noticing what sensations are alive for you. The top of your head, maybe your forehead. back of your head. Feeling how it is in your temples and your jaw. Just with a friendly attention, not trying to make anything happen or do anything special. Just like a welcoming of whatever is here in your eyes. The warmth of your eyes. Softness. Maybe feeling your cheeks, your your face, your lips, teeth, tongue. It's taking in the whole of your head. with a sense of simple friendliness. Yeah, and you might feel your throat, feel your neck, What's it like in your shoulders? Moving this warm awareness down your arms, your elbows. Her arms, elbows, forearms, and feeling the intricacy of your hands, maybe your fingernails, your fingertips. You could just be aware. It's like Could feel your hands as if you've never felt them before, as if this is a fresh experience.
3: And then moving
2: this warm awareness, gathering this awareness in your heart Seat of emotion, maybe feeling the muscles of your chest, the way they relax or contract. Also, the area of your back, your upper back. And dropping in here and knowing your heart from the inside. Sometimes I say the center of the center of your heart. And then moving down the column of awareness into your belly. My friend Rhonda McGee Teacher says we're soft-bellied beings. You feel that sense of vulnerability as your belly breathes, the rise and fall on the belly with your breath, and the softness of your lower back, the kidneys, Just being here, being with, receiving the body. And maybe moving into your genitals. A lot of body scans, we skip the general, the genital area kind of scares people. Not supposed to talk about it. What if you really land here? What if you really feel? What do these sexual organs feel like? Bringing a warm awareness, a kind attention to this most sensitive, also powerful seat of awareness. And the anus too, maybe feeling the buttocks, the anus. Any tension you're holding here that wants to release moving into the thighs, the knees, the calves, shins. You could feel your feet. And widening the lens of awareness to encompass the full body, your body in its aliveness as you presence here. And we'll spend about 10 minutes in silence. Um, just feel your body relaxed kind of friendliness. And when the mind drifts away into thinking, planning, remembering, just notice that that's happening. And then very gently, with a kind of sweetness, let the the sensorium of your body draw you back to what's alive to this, this moment, this freshness, this unique experience that is happening right now. If you drift off, just come back. And when you drift off again, you could just come back again and again, back to this living form. And for the last few minutes of this formal meditation, let me see if there's any extra effort that you could allow to release. What is the minimum efforting required to just touch the body with awareness? Can me just the lightest touch It's the lightest sense of settling back, settling in. Just knowing the body as it is. Now you could take a couple of deeper breaths again, and breathing into this more settled body. Feeling the way the breath fills your lungs. Maybe take a moment to just acknowledge the wonder this body breathes at all. Here we are alive. We're alive. Hmm. You could open your eyes. Maybe stretch a little bit. Look around the room. Hmm. Maybe pick something to just take in. You know, like something that you see every day. It could be, but. Look at it as if you've never looked at it before. Like right now, I'm looking at my computer plug. (laughs) Really see the color, the shape, maybe the wear and tear. See, see, See something with fresh eyes. Sense of really, the world is presencing for you. It's unique momentary okay thank you
1: thank you thank you for your practice yeah so welcome to those who are joining us who joined during the practice um So I'm going to start us off here, we'll talk uh, about for about 30 minutes and then do some discussion. Uh, I told everyone at the beginning, we wanted to talk about sex and sexuality and the dharma with you this evening. Um, And I'm just wanting to name like there's vulnerability in that for me. I'm just finding my body sort of uh, titrating between pretty tight and guarded and also maybe an invitation to ease and feel some softness there um that it this feels a little edgy to me so just naming that um we wrote this book together how not to be a hot mess and it's basically the about the precepts but what we wanted to do was frame them in a way that was fun and playful and actually really inviting exploration you know often uh For many of us who have connotations about dogma and morality and uh, being good and not being bad, uh, the precepts can sometimes feel challenging and, um, you know, sort of like a list of what we should do or what we shouldn't do. And so in writing this book, um, I actually found like there's such a, a rich territory in these precepts that actually invite me into my own goodness in a way that can be freeing, not dogmatic, and actually quite fun. So I'm not someone who would like eagerly take up the project of writing a chapter about sex. (laughs) But it was quite, it was quite a practice for me, actually, and I'm still in it, I'm still in the process. And so we thought we would just share with you kind of where we're at with all this. And um, to know, you know, that this is not polished, nothing perfect about this. And that to name, you know, such a huge topic, sexuality and sex, and it feels important to, to acknowledge our social location, you know, Craig and I are a white cisgender couple, we're married, we've been married for nine years. Um, we are educated and occupy the middle class. And, you know, we have this very particular lens through which we see the world and our experience, our sexualities. And so wanting to acknowledge this is only one perspective and there's many, many, many others out there that we're curious about. Um, And tonight we'll really be focusing on our just personal story. Um, You know, we could talk about all of the many sex scandals that are happening in the Buddhist communities. There's a lot to be said there and to explore about why and how. We could talk about why Buddhists don't talk about sex so much. Uh, we could talk about the Me Too movement and the importance of consent and knowing that trauma lives in our bodies. So there's so many different areas to explore and wanting to bow to those and say, um, we're, we're going to focus much more sort of on the personal here. Um, and maybe this can be a, a beginning of conversation and contemplation for all of us. Hi. So... We just did a meditation on the body. And for me, this was really the entryway into the Dharma, was a quite uh, uncomfortable and fraught relationship with my body. And in the book, we tell this story. This is one of my earliest memories, actually, of of realizing that I had a body. Um, I was a pretty innocent little kid, and it wasn't until I was about nine or ten that I started sort of you know, looking at my body in the mirror and, and noticing what was there. So I have this very poignant memory of one Christmas time. Um, and I had a very wholesome family, wholesome childhood, sparkling Christmas tree, lots of gifts. I remember unwrapping a, a Christmas gift that I knew was clothing. So I unwrapped it and pulled out this brand new green turtleneck. And so excited. I was all eager to run upstairs and try it on. And this moment of looking at my body in the mirror with this pretty, it was pretty tight, this shirt, and just seeing my belly for the first time, you know, this kind of like rotund, round thing sticking out from the turtleneck. And it was the first time I really had, I remember having a lot of self-loathing. I took it personally. It's like, oh my God, what did I do to myself? This is my fault. And this is something I need to fix so much shame in this like very innocent 10 year old. And so at that moment I remember sort of making a vow to myself that I would hold in my stomach, you know, I sort of sucked it in and saw how the shirt flattened out and I was like, Oh, that's what I need to do now forever, forevermore. Just hold in that belly. <sighs> so, you know, what is this 30 years later? I'm just now kind of training my belly to be round. Like, it's okay to be a little rotund. And the more I share this story, the more I realize, like, oh, you too? You know, I have so many friends who are like, yeah, me too. I always suck in my stomach. Like, maybe we all do this. You know, the sense of, oh, my story isn't this big, unique thing. Maybe this is pretty universal. You know, our culture is obsession, dominant culture at least, obsession with concave bellies. So, yeah, I came to the Dharma because I was suffering a lot about my body, over-exercising, under-eating, always sort of getting, trying to get somewhere different and being a perfectionist. Realizing the Dharma had this invitation to um, be myself completely. And while I didn't quite know how to do that, the possibility felt incredibly inspiring. Just the exhale, you know? so in this chapter, this is a lot for me about how to be okay with myself. Um, Interestingly, this is a pretty sex positive chapter, but I wrote it during a time when I was actually thinking I was kind of asexual, like could do without it, really happy with celibacy. uh, And maybe this is why. So we name in the chapter what we call the Trinity of Bad Sex. And for me, being able to name these bigger cultural systems that we're all in, this water that we're swimming in, and to see, sort of to take it from the personal to the collective, was really helpful in maybe allowing myself to be asexual sometimes, not really feel it, but also maybe to be a sexual being, and for that to be okay. So the trinity of bad sex. And many of you I'm sure are familiar with these, but it's helpful for me to name them because they're they're less personal. So patriarchy, kind of an obvious one, right? Sort of the the undeniable force that says men are first, men are superior and everybody else, everybody else in the gender spectrum uh, comes later. And this is really hard for everyone, right? Not good for men, not good for women, not good for anyone in between. So to see like, oh, some of my thoughts, like 70 Selassie, a friend of mine likes to quote Krishnamurti saying, we're not thinking our own thoughts, we're thinking the culture's thoughts. And how much of my body criticism, all my body image issues are actually just internalized patriarchy that are telling me oh, I need to look this way in order to be like successful, to be accepted, to be loved. This is how my body has to look so many cultural messages in that way. So that's the first one, patriarchy. Second one is objectification. And I really saw this actually while while we were living in Hawaii, we spent a year living on Oahu and I spent a lot of time at the beach. And I noticed all these people taking selfies, you know, on the beach and they're posting them on Instagram and Facebook. This sense of objectification, looking at our bodies from the outside in as if they're objects. And I think social media and, uh, man, pop culture really encourages us to do this, that we sort of divorce ourselves from our center, from our truth, and we go outside and have this sort of judgy evaluative eye on our bodies, on everybody else's bodies too. And it's quite interesting, now that I've started really talking about this, again, it's that sort of universal experience where students and friends of mine will start to say, whoa, me too. I have all these judgy eyes about my partner, about my friends, right? That we're sort of trained to see our bodies as objects. And then the third trinity, third third pillar in the trinity of bad sex is consumerism. You know, this idea that our bodies are, are to be bought and sold and owned and consumed. So at any given point, I'm giving my body away or I'm acquiring somebody else's body. So you can imagine how with all of this, the air that we're breathing, it makes for not very good sex at all, right? Or not even sex, but just embodiment. These are obstacles, I think, to really fully living and in inhabiting our bodies in a way that feels natural and healthy and whole. So there is something about just seeing those dynamics, just like I think I'm in this process of seeing systemic racism. You know, many of us, I think in the collective, oh, this is the system that we're in. We internalize it. And then these are the thoughts we have. This is the suffering, the dukkha that comes, personal and collective. And there's something freeing about just naming those, just understanding, oh, not just me here. There's a lot of different complexities at work, and most of them are bigger, much bigger than me. So that's a lot of what we say in our in our chapter, but I'll turn it over to Craig to, to say, okay, here's the problem. How do we solve it? What do we do?
2: What do we do? Oh my goodness. Mm. Yeah, maybe before I say what we might do, just to name that. um, Devin's occupying a cisgender female body, I'm occupying a cisgender male body. We're in a heterosexual relationship. Just to say, um, I think these analyses are not just for women, right? I think um, just, I don't know why I need to say that, but it seems important to say men too. And, P- and and gender non-conforming folks of course have also been colonized in this way and when, when Devin was speaking about this I was thinking oh this is like this is basically colonization the basic the body has been colonized by these wider message messages from the culture that actually serve Quite a purpose, you know, if you read, we're reading a lot of Resma Menekin right now, and he talks about white body supremacy. You know, not just white supremacy, but white body supremacy, the way that white bodies are supreme, are universalized, are the standard, things like this. And he talks about, you know, this is painful and damaging for black bodies, brown bodies, Asian bodies, indigenous bodies, but it's also painful and damaging for white bodies. And in the same way, this, the patriarchal dynamic that Devon is talking about is also painful and damaging for so-called male, male bodies, right? It turns out it sucks to be superior. You know, it's like this, this sense of, you know, the, the white body supremacy, that needs to uphold itself. That's where all this perfectionism comes from and this this gripping and this contraction and constriction. And these are all wider societal forces that apply also to men. So I just wanted to throw that one in there because usually it's women that are doing this deconstructive analysis. But I think also as men, we need, if we want to have good sex as men, we need to, in fact, deconstruct our own power. Because the fact that we are occupying a position of power culturally and sexually does not make our sex better. It actually interferes with real sex, with good sex, with intimate sex, with real sex, with vulnerable sex, with powerful sex. It makes everything very cardboard actually. Everyone's gotta be a porn star, right? It's no fun. It's no fun for women or men or gender nonconforming folks. So, what do we do? <laughs> this is what the next part of the book is, right? It's um, three things. So, there's the trinity of bad sex, and then there's three things we can do. But basically, what we do is take back my body, we decolonize the body. How do you do that? Well, we just did it. Right? know the body as this living form, this living frame that exists in this moment only. That is this kind of alive, tingling, sensational being, organism that has wants and needs and desires. And one of those main needs is this desire to connect with another. So how do we take back the body? How do we decolonize the body? So the three things are, one, unplug. Two, slow down. And then three, let your body be the guide. Unplug, slow down, let the body be your guide. Unplug, it's simple. Like Devin was saying, our consciousness is shaped by our electronic world, by our We are participatory in this objectifying existence. The way that we use social media, the way that we consume news, the way that we communicate through email and FaceTime and Zoom and all the rest of it, divorcing us from our bodies. So let's say for example, we use this example in the book, let's say you come home on a Wednesday evening. And uh, you're, you're in a partnership and maybe you both identify as women. And you, you've you had this crazy day and this crazy week and this crazy year and you're exhausted and you're overwhelmed and you kind of look at each other and you're like, oh my God, take out. Um, I can't even deal. And then you want to go from there to actually having an intimate sexual experience. But what's in the way? It's like your Android, isn't it? part of what's, you just, you want to check out, right? You're just tired. You just want to like scroll brainlessly through. So the first thing we say is unplug. Right after you order takeout, (laughs) put the airplane mode on, put the phone aside. And then step two is slow down. And slow down could just be Lie down on the floor. Like how often do you give yourself permission as a couple or as a threesome, right? Or alone to just lie on the floor. That's it. (sighs) Just let your body flop onto the rug side by side, and hang out, and feel. Feel the exhaustion. Feel the discomfort. Feel the overwhelm. Feel whatever it is that you're feeling, but feel it somatically. Actually, feel it in your body, not just think about I'm tired, I'm this, I'm that, this happened today, this happened today. But actually, like, just do what we did. Maybe, like, do a little body, body body, scan from head to toe. Really feel your body. And do it lying side by side. Maybe skip the how is your day piece and the oh, my God, here's the to-do list piece. And just lie, not even in your bed, just on your living room floor, flop out, slow down. Come back to your respiration, come back to your felt sense together. And maybe do that for 10, 15, 20 minutes, as long as it takes for you to feel like, okay, we're kind of here, right? We have arrived. I am feeling my aliveness and I can feel this breathing body next to me. Really feel this sense of being co-embodied. From there, you might let your body be your guide. So what does your body really want? And we all have these scripts right, that we've downloaded, we have these ruts that we get into sexually. No shame in it. It's just the way it is. But what if you really allow your body to tell you, here's what I want, and allow for that range. And you have no idea. I mean, you really have no idea what it's going to be. It could be like, I would love a foot massage. <laughs> or I would love to jump straight into bondage and whips. That's where I'm at right now. Or I just want to hug. Just, you know, I just, I just want to touch hands. Or Devin and I do this eye gazing practice that is super esalen and hippie that we love, right? But let your body tell you what would feel intimate? What would feel, um, I don't know, tantalizing? What would, what would the sense, the sense perception lead you to do next? And then of course, your two people or three people or seven people, I don't know how many people you have sex with at the same time, however many people it is, there'll be these negotiations of needs. And that's part of it. Or if it's even one person, you know, there are even parts of yourself that will be need to negotiate needs. And so there will be some level of conversation, some level of dialogue, some level of sharing together. And is it possible to really share for yourself? This is what turns me on. This is where I'm at right now. This is what would be delightful. <laughs> it is not always easy. Like Devin and I have had friction in these moments. We've had competing needs in these moments. We've had shame storms in these moments. We've said the wrong thing. We haven't said the right thing. It's human, it's messy. And are you willing, are you willing to be there for the whole process? Because that is what it takes to actually decolonize the experience and not just do the same like, all right, you get off and then I'll get off and then I'll make dinner and then we'll go to bed, right? It actually takes letting the body be your guide, letting your body surprise you. And it's possible. So, de- <laughs> so really, we're learning some new things here as we start talking about this stuff. We did this interview with Dan Harris, who's news anchor extraordinaire and sort of mindfulness um proselytizer and uh he has an he has a podcast called 10 Percent happier and he was interviewing us and and i said you know and like Devin and i like we like to set aside two hours you know we not we might not use the entire two hours we're certainly not going to be having intercourse for the entire two hours but like we like to set aside a good chunk of time to just communicate and be sensual and be sexual and have intercourse and then you know foreplay and this. It doesn't have to have a particular order, there's just room. <laughs> and Dan was like, that sounds awful to me. You know, he was like, that sounds like a Zen death march. You know, why would anyone want to make love for two hours? And so we're learning that it's very different. It's very unique for each person. And yet, if we wanna let the aliveness guide us, that has to be at least some amount of time that we have set aside. Now, of course, each of us has different situations. Some people have young children in the house. We have friends that have young children in the house. On Sunday morning, um, that's like their intimate time. And so they're super strict with their kids about screen time throughout the week. But Sunday morning, from the time the kids wake up until 11 a.m. is a free-for-all screen time where they can watch movie they each have their own ipad so they won't fight two boys they can watch movies they can play video games they can be on facebook they can do anything until 11 o'clock in the morning they have to make their own breakfast and everything right because that is like the only time during the week that our friends can have sex and they're serious about keeping they've been married for 18 years and they still want to get it on So the different situation requires different strategies. But whatever strategy it is, it requires a kind of awareness and courage. Yeah. So there's other kinds of things that I kind of wanted to talk about. Like we did a year of celibacy last year. We took vows with our teacher, and Pache, where we were monastic basically for a year while we were marrying. I wanted to talk about decentering intercourse. I wanted to talk about being playful, but those are all things that maybe we'll get to during Q and A. So yeah, if I were gonna recap, I would say there's a, there's a trinity of bad sex, which is this objectifying patriarchal consumerism. And then there's like this way you take back your body. Whatever your social location, whatever your particular expression, of course, will shape that. But it has to do with unplugging, slowing down, and then especially letting your body be your guide. So Devin was going to do a little guided inquiry for us. And then we'll open up to some question and answer. And you can report your own experience, if you're willing.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's just so interesting as a practice to feel my body throughout this experience, because I'm having all kinds of vulnerabilities come up. Like, this feels very edgy to me. So needing to name that, like, oh, is it OK? What do you guys think? Um, We hope to hear about that, actually. And we want your honesty in this next part. Um, And I think also to frame for me, this is the question that's really alive, is how is this our dharma? You know, how is sex and sexuality actually a practice that is liberating, that leads to freedom? Because if it's not that, I'm actually not that interested. And I'm certainly not that interested in spending two or three hours doing this. But if this is a mindfulness practice, if this is a practice that's gonna lead me to more freedom, I'm totally in. And I think that's a little bit where for me on the asexuality spectrum it comes. Like I'm not, I'm asexual in that I'm not into sex just for sex. That's not interesting to me at all. I'd much rather go for a run or have a cup of tea. But if this actually becomes a way to be in my body that is new and free, totally there. So, we I wanted to ask some questions. And we offer these in the book. Uh, you can let them just drop into your body. You can take a meditative posture if you want and do this as a contemplation. Or you can just sort of let the questions roll over you and see what thoughts or feelings arise. So the first question is, maybe just feel your body take a moment. <laughs> How is it? What is sex about for me? Like what is sex really about? And it can be anywhere to like, I don't like sex, I hate sex. Or I'm a very sex positive person. It's my whole practice. What is it about for you? And then second question, how do my deepest values inform my sex life? How am I living with and through my deepest values in my sex and sexuality? Just noticing what those values might be. And then last question, how does my sex or sexuality express my deepest values? How does this aliveness or this practice of intimacy express my deepest values? Great. So if your eyes are closed, you can gently open them, transitioning again. So we have some time together and I would really love to hear from you.
2: <laughs>
1: it might help some of my like, oh, shaky. But yeah, good, bad, ugly, how are you doing? But maybe some answers that came from that exercise, those questions, or really anything that's up for you throughout this time we've had together. I'm seeing Eugene and Pam. Hi, guys. Good to see you. Yeah. This is all in your honor, Eugene. We're doing this for you. (laughs) It's a sacrifice. It's hard. (laughs) You're muted. We can't hear you. Laughing.
0: Just happy you're honoring me with this talk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This talk is definitely in your honor. Yes.
2: Thank you. Please continue. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're just opening it up. Oh, thanks, Allison. Great. So you're welcome to put chat. You know, put a note in the chat, or if you want to raise your virtual hand, you can do that through the participants box. Oh, yeah. Loving kindness exercises toward my belly. Totally. Such a good one. Yeah. I remember actually that was one practice I learned in CDL was like sending metta towards a voice that was self-critical. It was cringing because of my body. Mm. Yeah, Maggie, I see your hand up. You can Go ahead. Unmute. Can you hear me?
4: Yes. Terrific. Okay. Thank you both very much uh, for this talk. I'll just be very blunt. I fucking loved it. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, And uh, for me, I find it freeing um, the more I open up to this subject of sexuality. And uh, thank you. when you were speaking, I just I what came to me was the way sexuality is used as an entry point to resist the um, the systems that are indoctrinating us with that supremacy. And I don't know if that is what some of like the lessons that were imparted, but I wanted to hear. That's what I took away from it. And I wanted to hear your thoughts.
1: Whoa, that is so awesome. Sexuality yeah. as a revolutionary act. Yes. Like, yeah. yes, beautifully said. I was, That's what I'm came
4: gonna... to me just hearing what you were saying. So I wanted to yeah. see if that was what it was.
1: Yeah, I'm going to use that if I can. I think it's a great frame. Yeah. It's, um... I'll let Craig talk about this, but I'll say, um, it's, it's, you know, power, I think sexual power is such an interesting dance between being willing to be so soft and so vulnerable and also incredibly powerful, like the kind of power that scares us often. And that, um, both of them, the both and that so soft and receptive, vulnerable and the sense of like, whoa, there's all this power that's bigger than me. Mm-hmm. I think we need both those energies if we're gonna be, if we're gonna dismantle these systems, if we're gonna be revolutionary.
3: Mm. I
4: think
1: those are both energies we need. Okay. Yeah. Thank
4: you. Ceyson. Yeah. Thank
1: you so much. You got more to say, Ceyson. Uh. No,
2: I think I, I think I basically said it just to, uh, just I'll reiterate, because I think it's such an important point that cisgender heterosexual men are also colonized by these same forces. It just expresses differently in our bodies. And so if we want to have fully connected, intimate, powerful sex, we need to do the work. You know, I think often it's... it's female-identified people or even female-bodied people who are doing the work. And men think, well, since I'm not on the receiving end, supposedly, I'm not obviously the victim of patriarchy. I don't need to do the work. But my recent experience has been very lit up by this recognition that I, I am carrying this in myself in a way that interferes with my Sexuality, my sensuality, my expressiveness, my spontaneity, my orgasms—how's that, right? And if I if I can really get into this, the belly, um, it's better. I'll just add that.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Awesome. Allison,
3: please.
1: Hi. Uh, Hi. Good to see
3: you. Calling in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, the Land of the Massachusetts people. Mm. Um, when I heard that the topic was going to be sexuality, um, having been celibate for 20 years, I was prepared to feel sorry for myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh boy, why am I here? And, um, I have to say that I really haven't thought of it this way until tonight, but I'm also genderqueer Mm. and I'm celibate, but I'm not asexual.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. And I do have a relationship with myself.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) And it's, I just realized that it's like, why do I need anybody? I've got both of me here. (laughs) So, um, yeah, far from feeling sorry for myself. I'm actually quite happy (laughs) Mm. because I don't get into arguments with myself Um, -hmm. I, you know, I don't usually beat up on myself. So, Mm. um, speaking as a celibate, uh, genderqueer person, I'm quite happy. Mm. Thank you both. Thank you. We both thank you. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm all about celibacy. I love it. You know, Craig and I took this vow a year ago, more like, well, 14 months ago, we took this vow with Rinpoche to be celibate for 12 months. So we did that. And it was so good for practice, so good for both of us. You know, just really simplifying, clarifying, focus on practice. And our relationship was so different. We're like good friends in the Dharma, you know, supporting each other in that way. And now, it's been about a month since we gave back that vow of celibacy, and I'm realizing like, whoa, it's so different. There's eros in our relationship, and the erotic is actually alive. It's dharma. You know, the erotic as dharma, that that can be as powerful for practice as renunciation. Both. Not one better than the other, totally different conditions, but really interesting to see like oh honoring both so good yeah
3: yeah
2: yeah Devin used that as a great jumping off point we love talking about celibacy and also just acknowledging where you were saying allison about being um, being whole in your solitude a certain kind of solitude but the sense of wholeness and the sense of eroticism that is not necessarily dependent on another i also found i find extremely compelling and as we came back into relationship with each other we actually spent a month so we had been fully celibate for 12 months including no masturbation like monk's vows and then for a month after we gave back the vows, we, we we took our own time. A little bit like you were saying, you know, so Devin explored her own sexuality by herself. I explored my own sexuality by myself. And then after four weeks of doing that apart, then we came together. I think we both found like, whoa, I mean, sexual union between people is completely fascinating and fireworks. But there's a lot of fireworks and a lot of eroticism. If you're in a living body and you're connected, you could be a sexually awake person without an external partner. And I also liked what you were saying about we, you know, the sense of we. There's a lot, I mean... I don't know if you meant to, but in me, I think there's a lot of different characters here and they have they have relationships with each other, you know? So I just wanted to, yeah, I'm very stimulated and kind of, I find it really interesting the way you were talking about it. So thank you. Now, not everyone that was here, don't feel pressured to like think what we said was was okay, you know, like, You can also say, as Dan did, that sounds terrible, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That's welcome here too.
1: What is sex about for you? What is it about? (laughs)
2: mm <laughs> Well, while we're waiting for something to bubble up for somebody that you'd like to say to 36 people, I'll also say we didn't mention yet um, the way that sexuality changes and uh, develops across the lifespan, which is something else that I have found really fascinating. You know, I'm 42 now. Sex is emotionally and psychologically really different for me than when I was 18. It's also physically really different for me than when I was 18. How interesting is that? The way that this body is different and and continues to change. And can we continue to express sensuality and sexuality at these different moments in our lives as our bodies change? Now we've got all these hands, how wonderful. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, Allison, your hand went up first, but can we ask Paul to speak, to hear another voice? Okay, thumbs up. Great. Paul, you're on.
0: There we go.
5: Hello. So lovely to see you. Um, I love this idea of sex as a revolutionary act. And um, I don't so much have a question as just a reflection about how deeply we are rolled into, how deeply we breathe this air of, um, of patriarchy and dominance, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, you know, that's the perspective of, uh, cisgendered male, but th- that that's so deeply embedded in us, embedded oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. that it's so much part of what we, um, what we breathe and what w- we grow up with and how valuable it is to, to try to dismantle that. Mm-hmm. Or, or even, just to see it Uh as being a fabricated identity. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes.
5: That it has no substance other than carrying forward some story that someone made up a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to say that. So thank you so much. And Mm -hmm. thank you for your candor.
1: Um, Yeah. I love what you're saying, Paul. And it actually reminded me for me, one of my practices these days is really like, can I learn about anatta through sex? Mm-hmm. Because it's one of those areas where way, oh my gosh, the identification with and the taking things personally so deep. My body, my performance, my experience. And it really changes things. If even if I'm feeling shame, for example, can I depersonalize and realize, mm-hmm. oh, not self, not me, not mine. Mm -hmm. You know, really learning about this body is nature and it has its own drives and it has its own flow and it's really different if I'm in the the moment with that view, then I can actually be real and awkward and fun and funny. There's like all this more room to move if it's not all about me and mine and, you know, all this identification. Mm -hmm. So that has been a really beautiful edge of practice for me. In terms of sex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, great. We've got a comment from Mark. We're so fortunate as affluent first world people to be able to investigate and experience sexuality in this way. So mm-hmm. true. Yes, even to be able to talk about it. Yep. Consider the sexual repression in so many parts of the world and the fear of sexuality that poisons many cultures. We are indeed fortunate. Thank you so much for that, Mark. It is true. It is true. And I've had these thoughts a little bit like, look at what's happening in the world. And we're sitting here talking about sex, really? But maybe this is the bridge, you know, like sex as subversive revolution against systems. And also I'll, I'll say, so practice of anatta, also awareness of thoughts, like noticing how I can wake up to my internalized bias, which is applies to racism too. It applies to all of these isms. And so can I use these practices where the personal then becomes political? And then that actually feels important, Mm. but so important to acknowledge our location for sure and our privilege. Uh Yeah, DP, you've had your hand raised for a while. Yeah, go right ahead.
0: Thanks guys. Thank you very much. Uh, Devin, I think you may have touched on this just a minute ago. Um, but I'm wondering how you weave uh, positive uh, sexual practice while still maintaining some adherence to the ideals of things like non-attachment and impermanence, mm-hmm. because on the surface, they seem to be almost competing ideals.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Yes. Great question. Sound, I mean, we both. Oh, sure. Of say. course.
2: Hand that one to me. <laughs> 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 well, I think one, one, uh, Okay, let me take a moment. Because we have in our own practice, embodied distinct and almost competing ideals within the Buddhist tradition, definitely. Mm-hmm. And we've lived in each of them. You know, so for this year of celibacy, our, you know, Minjur Rinpoche is one of our main, main beloved teachers as a monk and has been his whole life. And we're very inspired by him. And so we decided to take monastic vows for a year as a couple, as a way of, there were a number of reasons. One was to increase our connection with him. Um, Another was to mark the ending of something and the beginning of a new phase in our life. In particular for us, we were entering this long period of retreat and semi-retreat, and we wanted to mark the, end of a very, very busy time in the beginning of this retreat time. So there's that. But also to honor the, the voices in the tradition, in particular the early Buddhist tradition, that recommend celibacy and a particular view of renunciation in order to participate in awakening. And we wanted to honor that part of the tradition actually in ourselves because we hold that in ourselves. And as Devin said, we found those practices really supportive. Like we loved being celibate for a year. It was simplifying. And and it was a different kind of embodiment. And it did allow us to practice differently. So there's that one piece then there we have a whole other lineage devon and me in in the vajrayana which comes to us in particular through tibetan culture but it's really indian in origin and it's tantric and has its own sexual practices and that's the that's the world we're functioning in now where uh we are in the Vajrayana tradition, we talk about transforming the poison into nectar, which is super sexy, you know, it's like, whoa, it's so, it's uh, so Lama Rod talks about this like walking the, the razor's edge, or our teacher Lama Drupchi talks about this as the live wire of authenticity. It's like dangerous, actually. The Vajrayana is dangerous. Sexuality is dangerous. The body is dangerous. Aliveness is dangerous. And so it's a really different way of embodying the Dharma. Uh, so that's the first part of my answer is we love both. And I, and I think it's perfectly, uh, it's perfectly okay to weave in and out of these as your circumstances allow with with more of a traditional renunciation view and then more of like a dangerous Vajrayana kind of perspective. So that's the first thing. The second piece is like, okay, if you're in this, this live wire of authenticity view, how do you do it? It's just radical openness. You just open to everything and trust that somehow this shit is gonna work itself out. Back to you, Devin.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff. I'm gonna quote La Rod here and actually I'll put it in the chat. He has a great conversation with Kate Johnson about on this topic that I recommend you watch if you're interested. Um, he's a live wire himself. Um, but he really talked about this in interesting way. Is like desire, desire gets a bad rap in early Buddhism because it's about letting go, right? The path of non-clinging. So how do we practice the path of non-clinging? We can practice that by renouncing and simplifying and just cutting off desire, that's a totally valid way. But in sexuality, there's all kinds of ways to not cling also. And I think in some ways we have to know desire. We have to understand it in our bodies. See how it manifests when the whole body is wanting. The whole body is desire. How do we let go? How do we let go right in the middle of it? And that's where we're transforming poison into wisdom is like, I'm inviting this wisdom, this desire in so that I can learn about how to let go. And that looks all different ways. But I think that's again the frame where I can be sex positive is this sexuality, sex and sexuality, isn't about increasing my clinging, my desire. It's about inviting and clinging desire so that I learn about freedom. I learn about that open-handedness and authenticity. Like, what is it truly to be authentic, to be fully myself with all of this very human experience? And I don't know, I actually don't know what that looks like. So I think we can learn a lot from desire, from inviting it in. And we can play. That's the other thing. We can play with our relationship to desire. We can renounce. We can invite it. We can, you know, at a certain level, it's like, this is all mindfulness. This is all learning. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: Yeah. So for me, it's like, I can get so serious about it. Oh, the invitation to just be less serious. (laughs) (laughs) Be playful. Have fun. You know? That is
2: one thing that we have been really... I mean, I, we should probably turn it back over to SFI in a minute here, but if, it were, if, we, if we were going to f- like have a finishing statement or a closing statement, I think it would be playfulness. So Devin, Devin and I have started being incredibly goofy in bed. <laughs> you know, like we'll start out a session by dancing to the most ridiculous bubble gum pop music you know like taylor swift excellent britney spears even better you know something so ridiculous that you you couldn't possibly take yourself seriously and just let the body just like loosen up and make each other laugh and just have fun as foreplay or not even as foreplay as after play as during play as whenever it happens and i think um this playfulness is maybe the most subversive of all of the energies that we're bringing into our own sexuality. So, hey, try Britney Spears sometime. <laughs> so should we hand it back over?
1: Yes, that's our ending teaching.
2: <laughs> yes! <laughs> so
1: profound, <laughs> so profound. Joseph oh would goodness. be so proud. Yes. So, um, Trip, we'll turn it back to you. Do we want to do a dedication of merit? Is that you? Is that us?
0: It'd be great if you did that. Um, maybe okay. I'll just say a word or two about Donna first, um, just to say uh, that Donna is the practice of generosity, and you're invited, if you'd like, uh, to support our teachers. Thank you so much, Devin and Craig. This is mm. great. I'm um, invited to support our teachers uh, and to support San Francisco Insight. And uh, there's a page on our website called Donate. And I also just uh, sent the link to everybody through the chat. So again, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So yay, you can feel the energy in your body, right? Just as a live energy. And then through your heart, feeling this sense of sharing it. Like this aliveness is not for just my own freedom and well-being, this aliveness is for everybody. And that sense of sharing it out so that it touches every single living being. May we all learn to be alive and authentic and free all together. May we wake up completely together. So deep bows. Thank you so much for having us really just totally a pleasure and also terrifying <laughs> to be here with you this evening. Thank you for your kindness, your attention, really just such an honor. Great. Be well, everybody. Take good care. Bye. Yeah, great. Bye-bye.